For those of you guys watching online from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains, my name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. And if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. With that, pray with me, guys. We love you, Lord. We love you, Jesus, because you first loved us. Because you first loved us. And Lord, today we think of the persecuted church. We think of Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria. Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran and Pastor Wang and John imprisoned in China. We think about the Christians, Lord, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in Sudan, in Nigeria. And Lord, in joining with the author of Hebrews, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Please, God, help them. Lord, for President Biden, we pray a special mercy upon him, Lord. We pray for a special grace for him. Lord, I pray that you would protect him, his health. I pray that you protect his mental faculties, Lord. That you would aid him and just help him to make good decisions, Lord. Lord, we, uh, we think of the, all the soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad. We pray for their safety. We pray for their salvation, Lord. And Lord, today, today we need your help. I need your help today, God. I pray you keep me from error. As Connor was saying earlier, Lord, that you help me to say only what you want me to say. Lord, if, there's, if you don't want me to say something, Lord, that I, I'm planning on saying, don't let me say it. And if there's something I need to say that I haven't even thought about saying, then I pray that you'd give me that word. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit today, Lord, in my life. And for everyone here today, just free us from distraction. Competing thoughts, anxieties, whatever we're dealing with, we just want to hear from you, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged and we get a glimpse of your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so if you are here for the very first time, you should know up front, we love expository preaching here because it's awesome. Uh, that's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And that's, that's how we like to do it. So we've been on this journey for the last uh, six weeks going through the Gospel of John. John's Gospel, this is the sixth sermon that I've preached in John's Gospel, and uh, it is the story of the wedding of Cana, and it's interesting because it is only recorded in John's Gospel. This story today is not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, only in John's, but I'll give you the bottom line up front. Here's what's happening. The focus of this story can ultimately be found in verse 11, and verse 11 says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That is, he made known his glory and his disciples believed in him. In other words, this story is about seeing the glory of Christ. Okay? That's the bottom line up front. It's about seeing the glory of Christ. And so the question then becomes is, if the story is about seeing the glory of Christ... What does it mean to see the glory of Christ? Because we throw around these Christianese terms, and sometimes we often don't define actually what they are. And perhaps when you think about the glory of Christ, it brings to mind the ideas of, of bright lights and, and mythical halos or gold dust uh, from the HVAC system being pumped into the sanctuary. And some of those things might 
be a way to describe the glory of, of God. But in this text, in this story, the focus will be on the power of God as evidenced through the work of his son Jesus at a wedding when things start to go very poorly. Let's get into it. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. As we'll see throughout John's gospel, Jesus' mother, she's never named, not even once. And most commentators believe the reason for this is because to avoid any confusion with the other women named Mary. And so there's a family affair. They're at this wedding. Quite possibly it's somebody that they, that they know personally. And verse 2, it says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. All 12 of them, probably just the five that we've learned who they are from the previous chapter. This would have included Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and the unnamed disciple in chapter 1, verse 35, which most commentators believe is John the Evangelist, John who's writing this gospel. And they're there at a wedding, having a good time, partying it up, and then it says in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. They're at the party. They're at the wedding. And I'll tell you this, when it comes to weddings, let's, let's be honest. They're a big deal in our culture. Um, well, for that matter, they're a big deal in any culture. I mean, that's no different how it was here in the first century. There are some things that you just can't wing or get by with, not prepare for, not prep for. Weddings, that's on the list. You don't just wing a wedding. We, we want them to be perfect. Like, like tomorrow, Connor and Rebecca, you guys are getting married tomorrow? Do you guys want the wedding to be perfect? Do you, do you want the wedding to be perfect? Yeah. I, 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 was, I had all different types of responses prepared for how he answered that question today. <laughs> You want it to go perfect, right? And maybe we'll use the, the word perfect kind of tongue-in-cheek, but we would like it to go as ideally as it possibly could go, given the circumstances. But, you see, these weddings were a little bit different here, in that the celebration could potentially last as long as a week. That's how long these celebrations could last here in the first century. And, oh, by the way, the financial responsibility, and this is really important, it lay with the groom. In other words, Connor, if you lived in the first century, you're picking up the tab for the whole party for the whole week. And oh, by the way, should you run out of supplies? Well, that would be incredibly embarrassing. Not just embarrassing, but in that culture, it would be downright shameful. And there is actually some evidence to suggest it could actually open you up to a lawsuit from the relatives of the bride if this happened. Like, like, this is a huge deal. You don't run out of supplies at weddings. You don't run out of wine at weddings. This is just something you can't afford to fumble or throw an interception on. And of course, she comes and she says, Jesus, there's no wine. Are you guys having alcohol tomorrow at the wedding? No alcohol. Okay. So you guys are Christians, right? That was a joke. That was a joke. Thank you. But, but the reason I bring that up, because within the church today, there is uh, there's a different way to think about this issue when it comes to alcohol. And I want to be clear on this. Um, what's missing at the wedding isn't grape juice. In fact, in verse 10, the head steward actually expects 
that at this point in the celebration that some of the guests would have had too much to drink. The, the word there being used in the Greek, it doesn't refer to having too much liquid, but to inebriation. In, in the context, it's alcohol. In fact, when you read Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, look at that guy Jesus, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, if by wine we're actually talking about grape juice, then I can't begin to imagine how much grape juice Jesus would have needed in order to become intoxicated. <laughs> like, I just, the level of grape juice, I, you'd be like sick before you ever got intoxicated. So when Mary says wine, she means wine. And yet on the other hand, to be perfectly fair and balanced, wine in the ancient world was diluted with water. So to be accurate, it would have had way less alcohol content than much of ours does in a modern day context. That doesn't mean that they didn't have stronger alcohol content. They did, and they usually referred to it in the Bible as strong drink. And so this issue often comes up among Christians, among the church today. And to be clear, this isn't the main point of the text, but rather this is kind of a subpoint within it with a high degree of application. And so Christians, we, we need to think through some of these issues. And as we think through, you learn all types of things, including John Calvin, the great Bible teacher of Geneva. Really interesting fact. As a part of his compensation package from his church, they gave him 250 gallons of wine each year. Okay? Now, now, to be clear, that wasn't just for Mr. Calvin and only him. That was, for, that was for exercising hospitality, having people over to his house, hosting, entertaining. That's, that's what it was for. But I mean, could you imagine that today? Could you imagine here if the church, they gave me every week a six-pack of Bud Light. Correction, Coors Light, because there's no real men of genius any longer at Bud. But could you imagine, right? Some of you, got, some of you guys got this. Some of you guys are a little slow. Could you imagine that? The church gives me a six-pack of Coors every week. That would seem rather unfathomable. Especially most churches, like when they take communion, they do it with grape juice. Which, interestingly enough, you might be familiar with Welch's grape juice, yeah? Did you know that its inventor was a man named Thomas Welch, who was actually a Methodist minister? I thought that was interesting, right? So, so here's the bottom line. We need to be careful because there's a real danger when we start to change the parts of the Bible that make us feel uncomfortable. Because if you do that, you set a really bad precedent. It's a very bad precedent if you start changing the parts that make you feel uncomfortable. And so herein lies the question, how, how should we think about alcohol? And that's the question that we're getting at. And many of you guys, I think, if I've talked to you guys in any detail about this, you probably know that I've never consumed alcohol in my entire life. And yet the first time that I met my wife, Diana, she offered me a glass of wine. Okay? Clearly one of us was more sanctified than the other. <laughs> just kidding. I'm kidding. It was a joke. But, but for, me, for me, guys, I'll just tell you, I've, I've got no, um, no desire, just personally, to consume alcohol for others. My wife, on special occasions, she, she will. And I think that's okay, right? Apart from drunkenness. So... Where is the problem? The problem arises when we have our own rules for these things and then we try to make our own rules the rules for everyone else. And then we pretend that our own personal rules are authoritative on par with Scripture. That's the problem. That's legalism. 
when we make up a rule that isn't given in scripture, but we associate it with or claim that it is. I'm reminded of a story. There was a guy, he was in counseling, he was getting ready to get married, and it's nobody here at this church, just so we're clear. Um, this guy is in counseling, and it comes out during the, the premarital counseling process, uh, he's disclosed to his fiance just about his past. And he said, listen, if we're going to be married, I just can't have alcohol in the house. Because for me, I just, I just get into trouble. And I don't think it's evil, he told her. But if we go out to dinner and you order a drink and I smell it, it's going to be a temptation for me. And so what, what I would ask is this. You are free to partake of it, but would you consider giving up that freedom to help me? And there's the difference. See, there's a, a big difference between having freedom and taking freedom. There's a big difference between saying, well, for me, I, I just, I don't do it. Or for me, I think it's wrong. For me, it's too much of a temptation. But anyone else is free to do what they want versus the person who says, no one should ever drink because I'm not going to drink. You might be a, a single person here today. You get a roommate and, and a similar issue comes up. And what you need to remember is this. Love carries us much farther than law. Love carries us much farther than insisting on our own way, especially on issues that are not black and white in Scripture, in which we would say we have Christian liberty. And this topic goes well beyond the issue of alcohol. I, I think of another story. There was a, a girl, a friend, of, a friend of mine, his wife, she had a past, she dealt with like addiction um, to drugs. And so whenever she went in to have surgery, she'd tell the doctor, don't write me a prescription for anything that's super powerful. Just don't. No matter, I don't care if you think I need it. I just, I don't want to have any temptation. I don't want to have any, cause any potential relapse. I just, I just don't want to because I've got that addictive behavior. I'm, a well, I'm well aware of it. And I just don't want to have any type of close call where I might abuse that. And she didn't say, that's my rule. So that should be everybody's rule. That's the difference. Because the truth is all of us have problems and temptations with all sorts of things. And some people, they just can't have one drink. And some people, they have a problem with food. They can't just have one bite. And regardless of what the struggle is, when it comes to issues that aren't black and white in Scripture, we can certainly have our own personal convictions, but that doesn't mean that our feelings about an issue now mean that everyone else has to agree with us. And so, his mom comes. She says, we're out of wine. Here's how Jesus responds, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so what we witness here is there is this link to the cultural misconceptions about Messiah. See, Jesus doesn't reveal himself openly. And so this operation is going to be done quietly. The focus here is going to be on his private ministry to specific individuals, not a public one, at least not here at Cana. And the first thing you notice in verse 4 the first thing you need to understand is the cultural nuance of language can be distorted if only viewed in our modern day context. You say, woman, and everyone just holds their breath. Okay, we're be, like, that's, you would. You would, if you, if you heard me, and I said that to Diana at our house, and I said it real loud like that, you'd be like, oh man, it's going down right now. So when Jesus says woman, his, his response isn't disrespectful. It's abrupt, but not disrespectful. It would be 
The best way to kind of convey it in English, it would be somewhat similar to perhaps calling her ma'am in some context. Not disrespectful. But here's the question. Why does he say it? Why is he so abrupt with his mother? And I think the answer is because he's trying to be very intentional by revealing that his ultimate allegiance isn't to his mother and by implication to any other human relationships, but rather his ultimate allegiance and focus are spiritual concerns, specifically the relationship with his heavenly father. But notice how he asks his mother this question. He says, what does this have to do with me? Like in Matthew 8, 29, we see that same thing. This phrase, what does this have to do with me, used five other times in the New Testament. Every time it's used, it's spoken by a demon to Jesus. And I just mentioned, like in Matthew 8, 29, where they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? In other words, when Jesus says this to his mom, when he says, what does this have to do with me? He's essentially saying, Mom, you shouldn't be coming to me like this. It's not your place to be making this sort of request of me. Now, spoiler alert. He's going to solve the issue. He's going to fix the problem. Which begs the question, why be so abrupt? Why say this to his mom? He, he could have said very gently, Mother, I know, I'll take care of it immediately. Because he's going to do that, right? So why not just say that? Why does he respond this way? Mr. Piper would put it in these terms, and I quote, I think the answer is that Jesus felt a burden to make clear not only to his mother and his brothers and sisters, but to all the rest of us, that because of who he was, physical relationships on earth would not control him or obligate him, end quote. Jesus' focus and attention isn't on family relationships, it's on spiritual ones. And, and of course, as someone who doesn't have a lot of, as someone who doesn't have a lot of Christian family members, Oh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible comes from Mark chapter 3, verse 32 to 34. The people call to Jesus. He's speaking in a house like, Jesus, hey, your mom, your brothers, your family, they're outside. Of course, you know what he says, right? Who are my mother and my brothers but those who do the will of the Father? Are you not my mother and my brothers? In other words, it's followers not family, that are the ones that have a saving relationship with Jesus. And this is precisely what we are seeing here in verse 4. In John 2, verse 4, they have no wine, Mary says. Woman, what does it have to do with me, he responds. Your relationship with me as your mother has no special bearing here. It's my Father in heaven. It's not human relationships that determine what miracles I'm to perform. And it's not human relationships that allow people to cut in front of the line. Or gather favor because of who they know. Favor comes from God. It doesn't come from anyone else. And this is really good news. Because that means it doesn't matter what family line you come from. It doesn't matter if your buddy is with your boss or your pastor. It also doesn't matter if your parents are the most faithful and godly people you know. What matters is your faith. Not someone else's. And to be specific, it's your faith. Not your parents, not your friends. It's your faith in Christ alone that secures favor with the Father. And if you remember at the start of this sermon, I said John's goal is that we would see the glory of Jesus in this story. And this is the first glimpse that we get. And it comes through his obedience to his Father. Not earthly Father, heavenly Father. And 
it must have been a little hard and difficult for Mary. She's his mom. She carried him. She was pregnant with him. She gave birth to him. She, she nursed him. She taught him. She, she watched him grow up, not to mention, most likely, she, she'd come to rely on him as the family provider, as most commentators believe that at this point, his earthly father, Joseph, is, is no longer in the this, in, in this situation. He's died. But the truth is, Jesus is now entering a new chapter of his life. Even family ties had to come second to his divine mission, which meant for Mary, she could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. And this can be really difficult. For any parent-child relationship, which typically plays out when the child leaves home and goes to this thing called college, Okay? We've invented terms for such people. We call them helicopter parents. Yeah, I, you know, right? It's, it's like, oh, uh, dude, it's like the fourth week of school. Why is, like, Jimmy's mom still, uh, like, on the hall every day? Is, is, like, is this, I, I'm just a first semester freshman. I don't know how this works, but that seems weird, right? His mom hasn't left yet. See, parents, oftentimes, they don't like letting go of children because they still view them as their children. They, and they are in one sense, right? But in another sense, they're, they're grown-ups. They're adults now. And, and this, is, this is sort of what's happening here to Mary. It actually happens to a lot of people. And so we'll, we'll try to do this. We'll try to hold on to relationships in ways that we're not supposed to. And even at weddings, You'll hear this sort of language that you use, and it typically goes something like this. Man, we're so glad to have you, Connor, joining our family. Or we're so glad, Rebecca, to have you joining our family. Let me be really clear on this, not just for you guys, but for everybody else here, with some straight-up biblical language that will no doubt get me into trouble. When any of you guys get married, or have future children that get married, you're not joining a new family. Just like tomorrow, Connor, when you marry Rebecca, you're not joining her family. You're starting your own family. That's the truth of it. I just heard a pastor share a story. His daughter recently got married, and he told her, I have zero expectations for you when it comes to coming over for Thanksgiving or Christmas. I'd love for you to come over for Thanksgiving and Christmas. I have zero expectations. Because you have a new family now. That's your priority or have you not heard that it was said that a man should leave his father and mother sometimes and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become parts of other families? Hang on. That's not how the verse goes. But it's often how it gets applied. See, your, your, your parents are not joining you in a one flesh union no more than you are joining another family. When you get married... You're starting your own family. And, and honestly, if more families and more parents understood the, the biblical principles, they would create way less drama for their kids. And that's the point here. New relationships. New relationships are never easy. And, and Mary is learning that right now. She can no longer view Jesus the way other mothers view their sons. And even beyond the practical, understand that all earthly relationships are number two to our heavenly and spiritual relationships. And to be clear... This is not callousness on the part of Jesus, because if you remember it, when he's on the cross in chapter 19, he makes provision for his mother while he's hanging there dying. But Mary, 
doesn't get to cut in line no more than anyone else does just because she knows Jesus, right? Every other person must come to Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world or not come to him at all. And so, verse 5, he's kind of gently rebuked his mom, and she says, verse 5, do whatever he tells you to the servants. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. She's going to embrace the general rebuke from her son. And it's hard for moms to embrace general rebukes from their sons. And display her faith that is just totally content to leave the matter in Jesus' hands. She's made her request, and now she walks away trusting him. And this is sometimes the absolute hardest thing to do, whether it's for parents whose kids are getting married or going to college, or we find ourselves in difficult or just frustrating situations that are beyond our control. That's Mary. This is a new take on her relationship with her son, but her response is textbook. Do whatever he tells you to do. That's the example of faith that we have. And oh, by the way, she still doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. She doesn't know how he's going to respond. But she has committed the matter to him, and she trusts him. And that's my prayer. My prayer for every one of us is that God would give us that type of faith to trust what he says instead of trying to control every little situation in our lives. You'll drive yourself crazy if you try to do that. So verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars. Six of them, each holding 20, 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, verse 7, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, and so they took it. It is not accidental that Jesus is going to intentionally use these stone water jars from verse 6, because these stone water jars that held water, they didn't hold water for the purpose of drinking, but for ceremonial cleansing. Remember verse 4? Can we put verse 4 on the, on the screen, Chris? Remember at the end of verse 4 when Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come? He was speaking of his death. When he's going to die for sinners and make purification for sins. It's not an accident that he intentionally chooses these stone water jars that are used not to drink from, but for religious purposes. In other words, he says... You guys use these special water jars for purification, to do ceremonial cleansing, washing dishes, etc.? Okay, when my hour comes, you ain't going to need them anymore. When my hour comes, I will be the ultimate cleansing and purification. And so what we have here is just another example of how he's going to display and make known his glory, and he's going to do this by giving them a sign of something great to come. Because now that Jesus has come, there's only one way to be cleansed before God, and it's through the man, Jesus Christ. And so, in verse 9 and 10, it says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast, 
was probably something along the lines of a modern-day head waiter whose task was just to make sure the guests were happy and satisfied. So the, the head waiter comes to the groom, and he tells him, Dude, you've been holding out on us, man! Which, oh, by the way, shows that the groom bore the ultimate responsibility for the wine at the wedding. But it also means it was the groom's mistake that led to them running out of the wine in the first place. The groom has this responsibility and the groom drops the ball. Apparently he goes cheap, hires some discount catering company from the guy running out of business out of his dorm room. Don't do that. Don't go cheap. Guys, you go cheap on some things. Weddings, toilet paper. Don't go cheap on those things, guys. Just, just don't. It's not worth it. And so Jesus here does what the groom doesn't do. That's the point. The groom screws up. The groom doesn't come through. The groom drops the ball. He lets the wine run out. And the reality is, husbands and wives, for that matter, they fail. We fail to be what we're supposed to be. We fail to do what we're supposed to do. And here comes Jesus, quietly and powerfully, saving the day. He steps up to provide when the husband can't. He comes through when no one else can. He is the perfect all-providing groom. And so out of water comes wine. Better than any husband could ever provide. And it's interesting because I'll meet a lot of young girls today. A lot of young college girls. And they have a very distorted and unhealthy view of marriage. Almost this kind of Disney princess ideal of what marriage is going to be. And usually the focus is all about the ring or the wedding, but not about the marriage. And they've got this uh, thinking, right? Yeah, me and, me and Billy, we're never going to fight. I think he even owns a white horse and, and a, a coat of armor, too. And, and there will be perpetual butterflies and, and cotton candy living and growing in our garden. And it will be eternally blissful. None of the girls in here think like that. That's just not the truth, right? The truth is, the husband isn't perfect. The husband does mess up at times. And in this story, he lets the wine run out. And that, that's a big deal. But that's the way it is with grooms on this earth. Husbands at times fail. Husbands at times are not as they should be. Perfect. And in the midst of this wedding celebration, quietly, omnipotently, Jesus plays the role of the perfect, all-providing bridegroom. Out of water comes wine better than any husband could provide. And I remember, I remember watching this reality TV show a few years ago. And there the girl is on camera. She's crying. She's upset. She's frustrated because all the other girls, they're meeting guys. And, and she starts exclaiming, Where's my perfect person? Where's my best friend? Where, where's my knight in shining armor? And, and I was so frustrated sitting there listening to her babble on and on. And I just wanted to scream out to her and say, The guy you're looking for, they nailed him to a cross! But that's our problem. We're looking in the wrong direction to find the person we so desperately need. But that's the facade of this Disney Princess ideal that the culture shoves down our throats. Facade and idolatry at the same time. See, every one of us is looking for the, the perfect person, and Jesus shows up to be that person. And what makes this so sad is that most people don't recognize him. As we'll see, verse 
9, excuse me, verse 11 and 12, it says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested, that is, he made known his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Verse 11 says his glory was made known. And it says his disciples believed in him. Now, isn't this interesting? His glory was made known, but did everyone believe? He did this amazing thing. Doesn't everyone believe? Apparently not. Apparently his glory wasn't visible to everyone who had seen the miracle. Like, I'm sure some saw it, like the servants, and they were like, whoa, that's crazy. But it was probably just a fluke. Like, like some saw it and they were like, whoa, that's awesome. But there's probably some scientific explanation. So it is for a lot of people today. It's like God's trying to get a hold of you. He's been calling you to follow him. He's given you reason after reason. He's provided you with evidence and Christian friendships to help you. But you keep looking for a way out. You keep looking for an explanation other than the one God has placed right there in front of you. And, and you keep ignoring him despite him pursuing you. See, Jesus shows up to, to be the perfect bridegroom, to be the person that you were made for, but like so many at this wedding, you see, you don't believe. You witness something amazing, but then you walk away. And you convince and persuade yourself of another explanation. And so my prayer is today, as the team comes, that we would not be like so many of the people in this story that witness, witness, I witness these miraculous things of God that Jesus did here, only to have it go in one ear and out the other, only to walk out the doors and never truly be changed. I thank you for the glimpse of the glory of your Son. And I pray that the glimpses that we get in this story would change us. That we wouldn't be like the servants who are like, whoa, that's crazy, but there's some explanation. I pray that we would stop making excuses, that we would stop trying to talk ourselves out of following you. Help us, Jesus. Give us eyes to see your glory. Give us eyes to see that you are who you said you were. To see the truth. Help us to see the truth. We pray this in your name.